on November 9th, 2014, or 7th, or possibly the 11th, I sat in the Charlotte Douglas Airport waiting to board a flight to Boston. Well, actually, I was more like sprinting through the airport to catch my plane. But I made it to the gate with a few minutes to spare, although out of breath from dodging all of the oversized suitcases moving at a glacial pace in front of me. So I decided to pop into the newsstand next to my departure gate and grab some H2O to hydrate up for the flight. There was a line, so naturally, I started looking at the business magazines. They all looked pretty similar pictures of graying white men above the age of 40 in suits. Or it was like completely the adverse, you know, Mark Zuckerberg type images, the brilliant whiz kids of Silicon Valley. One magazine immediately stood out though. Matte print, gray background, the entire look was futuristic almost, and a zoomed-in profile shot of Sally Krawcheck on the front, who was staring at you with a sly look from behind huge bold letters that read, Find Your Mission, How to Succeed in Business and Life. I thought, that's funny, because that's exactly what I'm on my way to do. Find my mission. I pulled the magazine off the shelf and bought myself a copy. For the next two and a half hours, I scoured every page of the print, furiously covering it with circles and stripes from a big fat pink marker I found stuck in between my seat on the airplane. It was incredible. Actually, it was more than incredible. It was kind of creepy. What I found inside that November 2014 issue of Fast Company was life-affirming. I swear, it was as if the editor, Robert Safian, had had a tiny wiretap implanted inside my brain for the past eight months. This magazine spoke to everything I was feeling at that moment and to everything that I had been at war with myself over for the last month and a half leading up to that Friday when I decidedly walked through the doors of my former employer's office for the very last time. I remember being particularly entranced by the letter from the editor in that issue, a page at that time which I typically would never stop to read. At the top of the page, there was a photo of an intelligent-looking guy with glasses and peppery-colored hair. Under his picture, the title of the letter read, The Meaning of Business, and this is what it said. I've become a believer that business is the driving force for progress in modern culture. It's energizing to be at an organization like Fast Company that is dedicated to encouraging that progress through our print and digital articles. I tell my staff, we're not in business to make money. We make money so we can stay in business. Not all enterprises embrace that sense of mission, but the ones that do have shown that it's paradoxically a highly effective way to deliver financial success. We are living through an era of historic upheaval. The pace of change globally has never been more rapid. It is unsettling to some, enticing to others. Either way, it's unavoidable. In recent years, I've been studying this era through the lens of what I call Generation Flux. The people who are embracing the velocity of change and finding ways to adapt to it. Most of us would prefer it if clear rules and systems could predict success, in life and in business. But those myths have been punctured. Yet that doesn't mean models of inspiration don't exist. Life and business can't be separated anymore. Maybe they never really could. Today we all need to appreciate the layered, sophisticated interaction between the personal and the professional in order to make the most of both. Not long ago, I gave a talk to a group of pharma executives in which I emphasized the generosity and clarity of their purpose to help improve and extend people's lives. A CEO came up to me afterward to thank me, admitting that mission often gets forgotten in the quest for sales growth and other financial metrics. Yet there's no reason that mission and monetary results have to be at odds. What's your mission? 
and how are you living it? These are questions we may not ask ourselves often enough, but we should. I've heard it said that visibility is one of the greatest influences in empowering people to pursue their dreams and inspiring them to set goals that would otherwise seem unattainable. Throughout my life, I've seen this to be true time and time again. That's why a few years ago, I quit my job working at a fast-paced, venture-backed technology startup to travel the world telling the stories of a new generation of innovators, makers, creators, and leaders who are taking risks, forging their own paths to success, and shaking up the marketplace in return. Millennovation is isn't about highlighting the exceptional stories of a few individuals. It's about empowering you to forge a new future path. It's about learning from the experiences, the successes, and the failures of our peers. And most of all, it's a place to think through the unconventional strategies that will help all of us get where we're going a little bit faster. It all starts here on the Millennial Innovators Podcast. We're definitely going to talk about charity water today, but both of you are really interesting people. (laughs) I did some Googling before you got here. I'm just playing back everything that's gone online in the past 10 years for me, and I'm nervous. That's Tyler. He's the brand content lead at Charity Water here in New York City. Yeah. Are you a male model? (laughs) That was a test for some (laughs) that was SEO research, believe it or not. It's still there. Yeah. It's still the description to your blog. It must have yeah. worked. Yeah, just a, <laughs> just a regular guy trying to make it as an underwear model in New York City. We're talking about Tyler's unique take on his personal website. It's pretty hilarious and a great example of original personal branding. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> not not factual. Traffic through the roof. Yeah? No, no nobody <laughs> searches for that. That's good to know. That's good to know. Funny. It obviously I did not think about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, but you wouldn't change it? <laughs> No, I think it's funny, right? It's a good talking point. Here yeah, we are. I think it's a great talking point. If you're job searching or working on your online portfolio, I definitely recommend you take a look. So listen out for his URL and contact info at the end. Uh, there's like a what people have said mm-hmm. section, and it's definitely pretty um, sarcastic comments from people yeah. like Scott Harrison and other people you've worked with about, you know, your performance. But I think it shows you have a sense of humor. So I... I worked in advertising before I worked at Charity Water. And so like branding's always kind of been a part of the story. But when I created that website, I wanted to create like a portfolio. But as like a writer or like somebody who's creating social media content, it's hard. Anyway, I just thought this website should just be a reflection of my personality. And that's that. Yeah. So it is, it's, it's pretty wild. I agree with portfolios are difficult when you work. And you can probably relate to this. Like, I feel like my forte is more strategy on the marketing side. And so it's like, how do you show something that's yeah. a thought process or, you know, you're really mapping things out, you're problem solving. For me, I was like, uh. But I, I, one of the things that I love like about social media, though, is you can kind of uh, invite people into that world, yeah. that thought process and you're, you know, in that creation. And it's fun to just see people bringing kind of like behind the scenes on big shoots and see how you kind of like got to that place. And that's Cubby, Tyler's partner in crime and Charity Water's resident social media strategist. In case you're not familiar with Charity Water... 
They're a nonprofit organization that's not only changing lives by bringing clean and safe drinking water to people in developing countries, but they're also revolutionizing the way that nonprofits traditionally look, think, communicate, and activate people across the world to help them make change. Charity Water has been on my radar for a while now. But I really became curious about the organization after accidentally walking into a session called Spheres at a conference last August while Charity Water co-founder Scott Harrison was mid-speech. Scott has a really awesome story. And as you'll see throughout the episode, he carries a sense of purpose and integrity not always found in the trenches of business. If you're unfamiliar with him, I definitely urge you to go to the Charity Water website and dig around for his bio. We'll also make sure to link to it in the episode show notes page on our podcast website. So you can always go to www.millenovation.com slash podcast slash charity water. Again, that's www.millenovation.com slash podcast slash charity water. So you are like some sort of influencer or something, aren't you? I Googled you also. And the first thing that came up was your Instagram. You have 758,000 followers on Instagram. There's a few on there. Yeah. So tell us more. Um, yeah, I mean, so I've shot photos for years and kind of, I actually fell in love with capturing images uh, when I was like 14, 15 years old. When I was younger, I had a lot of opportunities to kind of travel overseas and, and go on trips to Dominican Republic and Swaziland and a lot of like uh, humanitarian type trips with my church. And um, through that, you know, I had a lot of friends and family that supported me in those uh, in those trips. And going on those experiences, I picked up, you know, a little Sony Handycam that shot like one megapixel photos um, wow. and found myself really falling in love with capturing images and being able to take those stories and those experiences and, and share them back uh, with those people that kind of helped make that possible of me being there. And um, and through that, just, you know, kind of fell in love with it. I found myself uh, being drawn much more to like the photography side of it and yeah. using more of that one megapixel camera and less of the mini DV component of that of that camera. <laughs> and, and so I just kind of upgraded over time and, you know, got a point and shoot camera and uh, then took a, a leap into, you know, um, DSLR world. And, um, and so I kind of always taken photos and um, just as like a side hustle kind of a fun thing that I really just loved and um, started having people reach out to me to you know shoot um, everything from weddings to album covers to conferences and events and um, and I you know just kind of fell in love with it and um, and a few years in I got kind of swamped with uh, with a lot of like uh, side work and mm -hmm. it was just always something that I did like in the evenings and on the weekends and kind of came to a place where I was, um, I found myself like shooting a lot for like other people and other, um, projects and, uh, really wanted a place where I could just like create and, you know, force myself to, you know, to make images, yeah. and, um, every single day. And, and, uh, at the time I had a Blackberry storm. And uh, I remember um, uh, seeing on Twitter people linking out to these like, you know, photos with like these cool borders and like crazy like <laughs> filters. And I was like, oh, I want that so bad. Like, uh, and I remember checking like the app world or whatever yeah. Blackberry's like app uh, situation is uh, like every single day, like looking for like when are they going to release Instagram for, for Blackberry. Right. And, uh, and it just, the day never came. And, uh, and so I ended up getting an, an iPhone 
iPhone 4 and Instagram was like the first app that I downloaded. I think it was probably a year and a half old at that point. Oh my gosh. Um, and yeah, I just, you know, um, use it as a place to share moments and, and stories and you know, things that were happening in my life and, uh, you know, sharing them with friends and family. And I remember a hundred people following me and being like, who are all of these people? Like, yeah. you know, that moment when somebody that you don't know starts following you and you're like, this is crazy. Like how this person find out about me. And, <laughs> Um, and yeah, just kind of, you know, grew over time and taking photos. I can't believe Instagram inspired you to change technology. Like you switched from Blackberry yeah. to iPhone. Like that's a big jump. That is a big yeah. jump. That should be a story they're telling. Yeah. Totally. I know, right? That is pretty crazy though. Blackberry's gone now, right? <laughs> they're gone, right? Yeah, I don't know. The fact that we're confused about yeah. it is not a good sign. It's yeah. definitely not a good sign. If they're still going, they definitely need help. Call me. Um, <laughs> um, that's cool. So photography was your first jam. It was your first thing. So were you working at this time or were you like younger in college? You were working yeah. as a photographer? Not as not no. as a photographer. Um, I was actually, uh, I was working with, uh, with an organization uh, in the Pacific Northwest um, and I was the EA to the children's director. And so we put on like kids camps and kids conferences and leadership conferences for leaders that like worked with kids. And so, you know, I would organize camps with hundreds of fifth and sixth graders and uh, fill up conferences with four or 5,000 kids in a room. And so, yeah, so I, I was, I was actually, you know, in an, in an executive assistant at that time. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I shot photos throughout that, you know, time as well, um, like at our conferences and different things here and there. So started in the nonprofit world, it sounds like. Have you always yeah. been there? Um, for the most part, yeah, yeah. You know, my first job was on a farm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, uh, that lasted for a few months. Um, and <laughs> less creative freedom. <laughs> less creative freedom. No, I, I mean, I was like under the age um, of, of working. and um, But it was just like a friend's farm and they needed help like moving things around the farm. And I'm like highly allergic to like <laughs> animals and hay. And so it was not like, a good place it did not last you. very long. I like, came home a couple of times and I was like, I need to bring my inhaler with me. Oh like, <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, so I did that for a while. Because you both are obviously talented individuals and it sounds like you have definitely like a dual background. Am I right in mm, saying that? Yeah. And you, Tyler, it sounds like you're a writer, right? Yeah. By forte, maybe? Yeah, that's yeah. pretty So like you're both obviously really talented and I've done a lot of cool things, but I always find it interesting when, you know, you see people like both of you choosing to work at something like a nonprofit, right? Where there are definitely sacrifices to be made doing that. So what kind of drew you to that world where you have to make maybe like sacrifices in salary or whatever, as opposed to working in the for-profit world? I was working in advertising before. I loved advertising. I like the culture. It's a young, hungry group of people that you want to hang out with after work and you're working on different things all the time. So like, I, I love that environment and that you're solving creative problems, but I didn't like a world where you're like tracking every bit of your time. Right. So like every 15 minutes matters and maybe you went to the bathroom or you were out at lunch for too long and now it's like, oh, I find a place to like hide this 15 minutes. And so you're at, you're like billing that back to a client somewhere and everything is about your time. And then it starts to infect your life outside of that world. So now you're on the phone with your mom and you're like, 
this conversation about dad's knee surgery is going to cost me $60 yeah. worth of time. Anyway, it just like infects the way that you think. And I wasn't necessarily looking to get out of advertising, but that, that just bothered me. And so I had the opportunity to come work at Charity Water. It was totally random. I had no intention of working in the nonprofit world, but all these thoughts were sort of colliding at one moment. And I came to visit the office and the environment, the community is really similar. It's passionate, hardworking people who are trying to solve a problem that's bigger than all of us. And yeah, all the, all the right things. My journey kind of began on a lot of those trips where I started taking photos and, and telling stories. And, um, and it was kind of during that time that I learned about the water crisis and kind of discovered Charity Water and really fell in love with, you know, what they were doing and the way that they're telling stories and reinventing the way that people think about giving and, and that experience. And so I kind of really fell in love with that, especially like, you know, being a visual person and seeing how well Charity Water was creating these beautiful, like captive stories uh, was really moving. And so I just kind of fell in love with Charity Water and, and I, uh, I had given up my birthday. Um, a lot of, that was like my first uh, experience with Charity Water. Uh, we have a, a lot of people that will give up their birthdays where they'll forego uh, giving gifts for their birthday and ask people to donate their age in dollars. Mm. So, you know, I was turning 25 at the time and ask uh, friends and family to donate $25 to my 25th birthday. Um, raised a couple thousand dollars that went on to help a community in Rwanda get clean water. And so cool. Uh, and yeah, and then um, a few years later, I was growing my beard out for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> um, and uh, everybody should Google this because his beard was gigantic. Oh, what's the, the duck people? I mean, it's um, just, it's the, okay, not that. Yeah, okay, not, <laughs> not quite. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, uh, but maybe I oversold it. <laughs> uh, but no, I uh, had a lot of people, uh, you know, this I think was back in 2012. I had a, a lot of people that were like, oh my goodness, your beard is amazing. Like, you have to keep this thing. It's incredible. It's majestic. Like, it's majestic. this, you know, magical, you know, beast that hangs off my face. And um, and then I had this other community of people that, uh, you know, that included my mom. Um, <laughs> and, you know, all that they wanted for Christmas that year was for me to shave my face. And so, yeah, I, I um, decided to launch a campaign for Charity Water uh, where people, um, so I actually launched two campaigns. Um, one where people could donate to save my beard. Okay. And another one where people could donate to shave my beard. That's and <laughs> whatever campaign raised the most money uh, would determine the fate of my face. And so, um, yeah, so we had, we had a blast doing that. And, and uh, kind of like Tyler wasn't really looking to transition or move or, um, you know, but the opportunity came about and I'd gotten to know Scott and Vic, our founders over the years. And uh, yeah. March of 2013. Tyler and I actually started on the same day. Cool. Fun fact. That's awesome. We both moved from the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was crazy. On the day that I interviewed, they told me about Cubby. Like, we're thinking about hiring this guy. You got to go check him out. Look at this campaign. Super creative, super talented. And then they set up like a blind date for us where we Skyped with one another. Like, hey, guess we're starting on the same yeah. <laughs> And then when we moved here, they put us up in the same uh, apartment. So like one of our supporters generously was going to be out of town and loaned his apartment for a month. So we were That's roommates awesome. for our first month in the city. That's really nice. That's amazing. huge, yeah. So it sounds like, yeah, you guys kind of came about halfway through the organization organization's mm. lifetime. And I'm sure that you weren't the first people to come in and create the branded content or, you know, social media side of things, right? There was somebody probably doing it. You came in under them. But it seems like you guys are kind of spearheading things now, right? Yeah, just by, just like an order of survival. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So is, when
when you come into an organization and the role that you're filling maybe already exists, right? Or like the, you know, the piece that you're playing already exists, but then you get that opportunity to move up and lead things, possibly change things. How, how has that been? <laughs> no, I think that's an awesome question because we, when we started, social media was my responsibility. Cubby had a different role and it was social media was not, it wasn't an afterthought. We were intentional about it, but it was still like a to do. And I don't think I was the, I don't think I had the capacity to be the person who was like, how do we do this better? Mm -hmm. So we didn't prioritize it until we handed it over to Cubby, who was like, I'm not going to accept the way that we've always done it as the answer. So mm -hmm. now we're going to challenge it and we're going to have days that fail. We're going to have days that succeed and we're going to learn and it'll just get better over time. And it has. Um, I think that's, that's the biggest thing for me is you can't be afraid to fail and try yes. new things. And if you accept, oh, this is the way it was done. So that's the way I'm going to do it. Like you could be anybody. You're a robot. So that's what you bring to it. Totally. So you literally just like switched jobs or like handed him yours and... <laughs> Uh, a little bit. I guess I was doing storytelling at mm -hmm. a, like a larger level. So social media was like a piece of it, just the way email was a piece of it. And the organization was small enough at the time that we were like just sort of scrapping things together. Part of what was challenging is like the organization was already known for doing these things really well. Mm -hmm. And they were like naturally talented at it, but we didn't know what it looked like to like give somebody ownership over uh, not even calling it email, but thinking of it as like retention and right. acquisition, right? So right. totally changes the way you look at it. That's that's the growth. That's the hurdle going yes. from scrappy to organized. Right. Uh, and that kind of intentionality about this is going to be your focus is where the shift happens. So I focus more on strategy larger storytelling cool. and the campaigns and like the story arc of the year and then Cubby's taken over on really entire community. Like it's not just social engagement, it's, it's our entire community. That's awesome. I feel like a lot of people, you know, when they land their dream job or when they land any job, especially you probably know this being in an agency environment, right? It becomes like fight to the death. You know, sometimes they're just hanging on like with claws, right? To things when maybe it's not a good fit. And that's really cool to hear that you actually have the ability to say, hey, like, Maybe I can look at things through this lens and Cubby can do this and that, you know, your leadership was okay with that. It's not, you know, you do this or you're gone, right? Yeah. 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 I think a lot of the credit goes to our leadership. We're very lucky because Scott is naturally a marketer. Mm. He like is a source of good ideas and he instantly recognizes a good idea and has the capability of making ideas better. You know, I hear from other people who are like, so the problem is we have these great ideas and nobody wants to make time or they don't see the ROI or whatever. We're just fortunate to have leadership who's like, yeah, we need to try that. Yeah, absolutely. I also love that you talk about going from scrappy to organized because as a consultant, that's the biggest thing that you see and also try and like impress upon your clients that, okay, you're surviving this way, but you're missing out on so much more, which is again, like your real retention and what's really going to turn your brand into your own personal platform, right? Later on, which is, you know, keeping audience there, figuring out why they're there. If they're leaving, why are they leaving all of that stuff? So, um, yeah, that's cool. What was that transition like? And are you the one that had to kind of convince? Oh, no. I, okay. I, no, I can't take any credit. I mean, okay. I think I was there for the ride, but it yeah. was a group. But they were already like going in yeah, that direction. Like, I think it naturally came out of a little bit of out of growth. So like as the team gets bigger, you start getting more specific about your roles and those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Yeah. 
Um, some of it was awareness. Some of it was like you learned from something that didn't work. Now you have to change it. So we kind of put, split up into a few different departments. So we have our, our water programs team and our deploy team. Uh, so they work really closely with our local partners on the implementation of our projects. Nice. And we have like our key relationships team that work really closely with our major donor community. You know, we have a small group of just over 100 families that cover all of our operating costs so that 100% of every public donation goes directly to clean water. What? That's unheard of, especially in an NFP. NFP equals not-for-profit. Finance team, we have our, an in-house engineering uh, and tech team, so we build everything in-house, all of our website, production team, and then the larger marketing team, which created False Sender. Yeah, I mean, the whole labels thing is really just for purpose of like talking about it outside. Right. It's pretty fluid. Like we have like group meetings, so it's the marketing meeting and the creative meeting and the production meeting. Like I, you know, everybody's kind of all over the place still. Yeah, I come from the startup world. I'm a scrappy startup kid, but have also worked with a lot of really large brands and seen growth and strategy at different levels, right? Charity Water is interesting because to me, I've never seen a nonprofit structured like this. I don't know that anybody else has even copied your model yet. Charity Water's model is basically the gasoline that fuels the fire. While most other nonprofits are competing for grants, Charity Water has 100% of their operational costs covered by an exclusive group of supportive charitable investors. Investors. But, you know, Scott and Vic, they basically went out and they raised capital almost like you would for like a venture backed company, right? To cover your operations costs, which is what you just mentioned. Risky move literally changed the industry. All of your donations go directly to the programs. Yeah. 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 That's super innovative as far as <laughs> nonprofits go. You see, that's the sense of mission that Robert was talking about in his letter. We're not in business to make money. We make money so that we can stay in business. I think it's one of the things that makes Charity Water so unique, for sure. That we can promise that 100%. If you're a little kid and you have a lemonade stand and you raise $24.50, $24.50 goes to clean water. Mm. That's like that's an awesome promise to make to that little kid or somebody who's giving $10,000, right? 10% yeah. of $10,000 is a serious amount of money. Yeah. So I think it's really, really important. It's like a level of transparency and integrity on our part. And raising money on the other side to support the operations costs is like creating a family. I mean, they are investing in the organization, but like they're part of the team. And we know them, they come into the office, they come work out of the office when they're in town. And I think the thing that's really special is that they are, they're part of us. Right. Like they're not just throwing money at something. It's not like an investment that's going to return, right? Right. You're just, you're investing in a better world. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Again, just innovative as far as nonprofits go. I don't know if either of you have ever worked in like a startup environment before. Not really. Really? Yeah. So a lot of times there's like this constant anxiety, like <laughs> the company is going to fold tomorrow or like, oh, we just got our best deal ever. We're about to like crush everyone. And then an hour later, oh my gosh, I might not like have a job tomorrow. And it's just like this constant stress, especially if you're in a really competitive market. And then, you know, in nonprofits where you might have a new or innovative angle on the nonprofit market and you have to really go out and advocate for yourself to raise that support, to raise that sponsorship, and your operations really can't be scaled because you're kind of like dropping pennies into the jar. So I would imagine that your system cuts down on that anxiety and kind of makes that gasoline that you can throw on the fire. Yeah, it is now. And I think we've taken precautions. So there's like the group called The Well. So anybody who commits to joining this group is, I think it's at least $7,000 a month. So we can forecast that, you know, we have this much runway. 
But prior to all of that happening, we were on the verge of closing our doors. Oh, man. And Scott has this amazing story about meeting with Michael Birch, who's one of our angel investors, and a really casual meeting where he tried to explain, you know, that the organization, we can't continue to build water projects. We have plenty of money set aside for water projects, but we can't continue going if we don't have operations budget. And so Where the Well Exists kind of pitches this idea of the well. And it's kind of a flippant conversation. He walks away thinking, well, didn't work. And it's like days. We're days from closing the doors hmm. and then he gets an email in the middle of the night from michael birch that's like super casual hey just want to let you know i wired a million dollars to your bank account can't <laughs> wait to see what we do in the future something along those lines and like literally save the organization wow but it could have gone the other way yeah. that's amazing that's inspiring his family is just unbelievable that's so nuts so he's it sounds like the first like the lead investor it's crazy were you guys there at this point no 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 but what i love most about that story is the integrity that scott had right in that moment where you know there was all of this money on like the water side on the program mm -hmm. side and you know he talks about having people telling well just borrow from that account and right. you know pay the bills and then uh and then pay it back um you know but you got to survive and just like in that moment Moment, him acting with such integrity with those dollars and ensuring that no, that nine-year-old that did a lemonade stand and raised twenty-four fifty um, knows that all of that money has been sitting in this account and is being deployed to build a water project, and, and that's it. That's a promise. It's, yeah, exciting to be like part of that and to see that from so early on in the organization. I think it's attributed to a lot of its success. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of organization I want to be a part of. That's the kind of leader I want to work for. That's the kind of movement I want to help progress. Integrity in business is such a, it's hard to find. Just flash back to the comment <laughs> earlier where I said, where do I put this 15 minutes from my lunch break? Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. I think holding yourself accountable to your word and to what you agree to is um, huge. And that probably is something that's really stamped on the culture, it sounds like. That integrity piece, the thing that corporations of all kind find so easy to throw out the window that is what forms the basis for everything that makes Charity Water a standout organization. From the transparency and relationship they have with their donors to the way they empower people of all class, status, and journey to launch their own fundraising campaigns. From the way they make fundraisers feel like family to the contagion of their social media. It all starts with the same thing. Being straight up with your audience about who you are, what you need, why they should care, and why what you're doing matters in a grander scheme of things. I think you don't see it often in brands that you have complete trust. You know, it's like I may endorse a product because I, I really like the product or I really, I know the guys who started the company or whatever, but it's rare that you have a brand that you just have implicit trust and you, you want to support them. Yeah. And, you know, in a venture situation, right, people are going in to get a kickback eventually mm -hmm. when the company is successful. But here <laughs> it's all I'm giving this and I know that it's not going to come back to me personally, but we'll make a better world. But our kickback is when we started at Charity Water, the statistic was 800 million people mm -hmm. didn't have access to clean water. Uh, a couple years ago, it dropped to 748 million, which doesn't feel huge, but it, that's a dramatic shift. Yeah. Uh, and now it's at 663 million. Wow. So like that's worth more than some stock shares. Yeah, that's impact, right? Yeah. My episode last week, I had actually a couple on the show. I heard never, it. You did? Yeah. Not awesome. together. We both listened. Side note, if you haven't listened to episode five, creative rock stars, Tara and Zach Rose, definitely go back and do it. I can almost guarantee that it will be the most fire 
fire fueling 45 minutes of your entire week. Thanks, guys. We um, talked about partnerships, right? How does Charity Water like look at partnerships? I know we're in a WeWork and you guys have a cool partnership with WeWork right now. So just wondering what your approach is to that. Yeah, so um, we just launched this partnership with WeWork and uh, they have these really beautiful water crafts um, in all of their offices that they fill with fruit water. Their founders spend a, a great supporter of ours and kind of always wanted to do something together and they have these you know water filters that are you know hugely popular in their offices um so you know water is a big part of what we do and we decided to co-brand these filters um to really raise awareness and and money for uh, clean water projects so we work is actually donating for every filter in their offices for a monthly giving experience called the spring every month they're donating um for each one of their filters uh, in all of their offices every month and then for their members, whoever joins through charitywater.org slash WeWork joins the spring, the monthly giving program that we just launched. WeWork is actually matching their donation, which is super cool. So it's kind of a fun surprise coming in here today and being like, oh my goodness, there it is in real life. Yeah, like, right. To actually like see it like in a WeWork was pretty cool. I think it's a good example of how we look at partnerships because it's just as much about WeWork as it is about Charity Water. Right. So obviously it benefits Charity Water, but the value has to be to WeWork and anybody who's a part of it. So I don't know. I think there are a number of brands that we partner with. Soma has a water filter. It's sort of a similar deal. Lokai. So it's like, it's easy to have like products that support charity water. But I think in the future, especially as we think about the spring, this monthly giving community is how do we empower brands to do something good on behalf of their staff right. or supporters in the same way that you would maybe as a new employee at a company, you would get, you know, your uh, free transportation ticket and your whatever your meals are going to be paid for here at Google and whatever, you get a handful of things and maybe one of them, uh, it's like gym pass. And then also every month you give one person clean water. Yeah. It's like, what are the ways that we just like smartly reward other yeah. companies? Yeah. Maybe even like a new members type thing, you know, like when mm. you have a new hire, right? Or like yeah. a new member, you know, at WeWork, we have a new members joining all the time and they always do like a new member brunch, right? And I'm sure they give them some sort of like little, like a sticker to put on their computer <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, but that could be an interesting uh, idea for you guys. I'll write it down. Yeah. So the whole idea behind kind of the Millennial Innovators podcast and my company, which is called Millennovation, Millennial Innovation, um, it's evolved into something much different than it, what it once was. But the idea it started with was this idea that I was working in the tech st tech startup industry at the time, and I was really being forced into this box that I didn't want to go in. <laughs> and a lot of people were, you know, I like tech because it creates new things, and I just find it fascinating that people can kind of like build these things that don't exist. But I am not a super technical person outside of the tech that you really need to be a marketer, right? And so I remember thinking to myself being like, innovation isn't just for people who are building apps or like softwares or robots. Innovation is really like looking at what exists and, and just using what exists as like an infrastructure to build more, right? And new paths to like getting to whatever goal you want to achieve, whether that's, you know, creating clean water for everyone around the planet or I don't know, selling your company for a million dollars or even getting your dream job. And so I find it really... I, especially in partnerships, I think nonprofits have a hard time. For some reason, nonprofits, I feel like they just have a lot coming at them at once. They're usually yeah. lean. Yeah. And so they have a harder time 
focusing on that innovation aspect of things because they're just trying to figure out how to make it work and do more with less, right? And keep the donations rolling in and stuff. So I think it's cool to hear that you guys really think about how you're approaching these partnerships and you're doing it differently than most people do. I hope so. What you're saying is so true. I think it's applicable even outside of nonprofits that you would be so lean that you can't focus on some of the things that really matter. I was thinking about a sports analogy that my dad always used. You have a team who's really good in like the first three quarters and they're winning the game and then they get nervous about losing their lead. So then they continue playing the fourth quarter not to lose. Right. So you change the way you're playing. You're no longer playing offense. You're just trying not to lose. Right. And as a result, the other team catches up and usually wins. So I think I see brands all the time that are playing not to lose because it's like, well, we can't afford to invest in a person to do this full time or we can't take this chance. We can't risk spending money on this advertisement. And that's where you don't grow. So I think it's it's just as important with the partnerships pieces to challenge the way that it's done. And really, if it's valuable to somebody else and it's valuable to us, it's huge. That's a really good analogy. That's brilliant. I think early on for us, like we, you know, we weren't there at the beginning, but um, thinking about innovation, um, you know, the 100% model was pretty innovative yeah. in the nonprofit world, but also like proving mm. the projects. That was another really, really powerful piece um, that Charity Waters really invested in from the beginning. And it started with a $100 GPS unit. Like we're already there doing this water project. Let's take photos and GPS coordinates of that project, right. you know, with this, you know, $99 GPS unit from Best Buy <laughs> and report back to those people exactly where their money went. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, it was a hundred bucks. And, but that innovation has like you know, grown into, you know, even bigger initiatives. You know, Google a few years ago wrote us a grant for $5 million um, to develop remote sensors for our projects. Wow. You know, so now we're 10 years in building water projects in over 24 countries wow. um, that will serve 6.4 million people. And that's a lot of projects. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've always been passionate about sustainability and making sure our projects continue to work and function and working alongside of our local partners to make sure something goes wrong that we can fix it so that, you know, nine year old that donated $24.50 knows that that project and all that hard work making lemonade is still impacting lives today. Right. And so, um, you know, manually checking up on every project is just, it's hard, you know, being over 24,000 water projects in doing that within a year, um, checking up on every project is nearly impossible. So, um, you know, Google came alongside of us to initiate this grant that helped us build these sensors so we can actually tell in real time uh, how these projects are doing. If something breaks, uh, we can work with our local partners and local mechanics to repair the issue and to fix the problem. So we're not just building new projects, but taking care of the ones that we already have. Yeah. I love that you bring up sustainability because again, like so often, and you know, this is a problem in large corporate organizations too, is that people are just applying band-aids, right? And the reality is like, you have to take a step back, especially when it comes to communicating, I think with your audience, you have to take a step back and you have to look at things, aerial view, and you have to see everything that's running into each other and touching points and really creating the problem area. Sustainability is it's just something that I'm always thinking about when I'm creating solutions. And would you guys consider your team lean? Um, a little bit, but I think we're, I don't think we're stretched in in a way that we don't get not to like create projects for ourselves. Yeah. Right. It's the right amount of people for what we're working on. Yeah. And we can all still be intentional about pushing it. 
Do you have processes that you go through as a team to solve problems when you're talking about communicating with your audience or telling stories? Like, how do you innovate within your team, right? For me, the biggest thing is intentionality. Yeah. And one thing we started doing a year ago, at least for like the way Cubby and I work together, is sitting down. We sit down weekly to look at the week ahead in social. And then we sit down monthly to look at the month ahead. Nice. So that's about surfacing potential brand moments, but also creating the space to have a great idea and be able to prioritize it. So it's not like two days before Valentine's Day when you think of something, you're like, well, that would have been great. Mark it down for next year. That feeling sucks. So... (laughs) For us to have an idea in that space and then be able to go through the proper channels and not have to do it after hours or behind people's backs um, is the way that like you give place to birth really good ideas. Yeah, that's a good point. Creating space. What goes along with that is also not feeling like you're competing with somebody else's timeline. Mm -hmm. It was interesting for me going from the nonprofit world to the for-profit world because in nonprofit, you're kind of in a viewpoint of scarcity in a way, right? If you know that you're applying for a grant that five other, you know, somewhat competitive organizations are applying for. And so if you're going to have a collaborative lens, like view on things, you really have to be conscious about doing that. Because it's easy, I think, to take the competitive position. Then in the for-profit world, it's almost like a game, you know? It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, they'll win this one, I'll win that one. (laughs) Your model, it seems like to me, allows you guys the time to just compete against yourselves almost, right? Yeah. And we also try to use that space to reflect as well. Mm -hmm. Like that's also a weekly meeting where we try to learn from our, the week before's um, uh, social media or, you know, we also try to use that space as a place to um, really think about like, oh, this did really well. What was it about that post? Was it the time of day? Was it the photo? Was it the copy? Was it the, you know, what was it that contributed to that moment really resonating with our community? And so I, I think it's just creating that space to learn and collaborate. Yeah. Would you say like strategy is definitely with being intentional and in, in everything that you guys do? Yeah. Uh, it's the intentionality. And mm-hmm. Like the GPS example from earlier, I think is really valuable because Scott didn't have to bring a GPS unit. He could have showed people photos or he could have just told the story. He could have sent an email that said, hey, we did this thing in northern Uganda. Should have been there. It was cool. Um, But he didn't. He went above and beyond and blew his audience his mind <laughs> and Gary Vaynerchuk talks about it all the time like this thank you economy idea where you have to be that intentional and that like aware of what your audience is appreciative of or frustrated by the questions that they're asking and I don't even know if it's strategy but it's doing the right thing and making space to listen to what is right yeah. so this GPS idea that Tyler and Cubby just told us about was a serious game changer in the nonprofit industry by bringing the GPS along with him to give a new village access to clean drinking water Scott unlocked a visual and digital way for charity water donors to actually see, participate, and track on a map where the funds they raised were going. Not only that, it gave them a new frame of reference for the length of the journey it took to get there. And for the first time, Scott's GPS gave donors a more literal and tangible way of seeing the impact their fundraising actually made. That GPS democratized the experience of doing a good thing. The euphoria we all feel when we know that we've done a good deed, made a difference, or given someone the chance at a new opportunity. Scott created an entirely new way to experience generosity in the digital age. 
and he did it for under 100 bucks. I can tell you when I first started this podcast, I bought two $15 like lapel mics from <laughs> Amazon and the quality wasn't like great at all. It was pretty rough, but it convinced me that, okay, if this is something I want to do, maybe I'll spend a couple hundred bucks and buy some mics, right? You know, you have to start somewhere and test yeah. things out and you don't have to hire a camera crew mm. or like, you don't have to spend all this money. Yeah. For the record, it's a lovely setup. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So many times we fall into the trap of thinking, I don't have enough to do X, Y, Z. I don't have enough people. I don't have enough funding. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough resource. But honestly, I can say firsthand that those are just the excuses we tell ourselves to avoid inconveniencing our comfort, our pockets, or our schedules to go out of our way to make the world a better place for someone else. I'm not being self-righteous about this. If anything, I'm preaching to myself. I'll be the first to admit that far too often, I let my sense of mission succumb to my addiction for comfort and more self-gratifying things. I definitely know that there are a lot of people listening that love Charity Water for so many reasons, but probably look at you guys and are like, oh my gosh, that's my dream job. So we talked a little bit earlier how you both got there, but tell us something that we couldn't find anywhere else about the hiring process like a secret or, you know, that we couldn't find online. Maybe the jobs themselves. <laughs> yeah. No, we were laughing earlier about the fact that the creative department has rarely had an intern. And I think it's just out of, we just don't make time to like post it as a, I think it would be very valuable for somebody, I'm sure. And we would love having someone there. But if it's not a need for us, we don't really create the space for someone else. Yeah. And I had someone ask me recently about like, do you, do you have creative internships? And I was like, yeah, tell me what you want to do. I'll create something. <laughs> That's how it works. And I was like, maybe I shouldn't have said that out loud. <laughs> We're going to be better about this. I don't know. What do you think about what does nobody know? We get tons of applications for actual careers. Yeah. Uh, and I know from firsthand experience that it's like, it's so hard. It's tedious to go through every application. And I refuse to not look at every application, but there's still something fatigue that happens, right? So I think finding ways to stand out is really important and not necessarily on paper. I think the, the people that I've connected with and maybe even like maintained a relationship with, even if they didn't get hired, were people who reached out to me directly. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people would think this is terrible. Like somebody who's hiring is like, please don't tell a thousand people to contact <laughs> me. But I truly, it's the best way to get to know somebody. And I, I will know so quickly when we talk in person if you're a good fit for the org and honestly in almost every work experience I've had it's less about the skill level and more about the person mm, if you're a good fit for the organization you bring creative energy like whatever you need to learn how to use WordPress fine we'll teach you mm. like we'll figure that out you don't know how to use Photoshop you know we'll get you some classes like you can grow into the role yeah. if you bring if you naturally have like fit. Yeah. I talk a lot with people who are graduating college, right? And the biggest thing I try and impress upon them is like, you don't have to be the right person right now for that mm -hmm. job. The biggest thing that I want to see that I can guarantee you most leaders you want to work for and most organizations you want to work for want to see is that you're willing to learn yeah. mm -hmm. that you're passionate, like you're ready to dig in and get your hands dirty. Yeah. For two years, I was doing a side project. This is actually a good, this is, not good, this is something modeling. I wanted to address. Uh, not <laughs> underwear modeling yet. Um, no, I, I was doing a hobby club. Okay. So every month was a different hobby. 
it started as like a New Year's resolution for myself. I'm going to do a different hobby every month and like something I wouldn't normally learn about. And then I think I told like my family and my mom's like, oh, I'll do it with you and started to grow. And I was like, okay, I'll just make this website and you can join for a dollar a month and I'll send emails. So you don't know what the hobby is. You'll just get an email. It's like, hey, this month we're going to be learning how to make candles. Mm -hmm. And then like, I'll try to educate you and give you some of the homework that I'm doing. And we make candles together for a month and then we move on to the next thing. So I did this for two years and it's been wild. What's the website? It's hobbyclub.org, but this would have been the third year and I didn't keep it going. Oh no. But only because I have secret plans for V3. It'll be V3. Okay. So... Version 3? TBD. TBD. Yeah. I'm like, what is V3? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that like VR but different? <laughs> um, oh gosh, I'm sorry. I lost you. Cool. Um, yeah. I would That's definitely great. join that. That sounds awesome. It was a ton of fun. Yeah. That's great. So where can we look out for V3? Hobbyclub.org you can go to. Okay. But the other thing I was going to say in looking through applicants and especially in an interview setting, one of my favorite questions is what kind of work do you do outside of work? I think it's really important with our generation that you can show that like you're a videographer, you love shooting, like your Instagram stories should be bonkers all the time. And it's just such a good reflection of the way you tell stories. So that's what I want to see. And if uh, I think anybody who works within a creative capacity should, even if it's like, oh, I do hand lettering. It's like, yeah, you do. That's awesome. But I want to know, I want to know that you don't go home and watch TV. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we all do that, but we can <laughs> yeah. also do other things. Totally. That's cool. Yeah. What about, I know you guys have cover letter section, right? On your, yeah. personally, I hate cover letters. And the last time I wrote one, I literally started it with, I really don't enjoy writing cover letters, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sure you don't enjoy reading them either. What are your perspectives on the cover letter thing? Mm. I can think of maybe two great cover letters that I've seen, and both of them were very honest and like thoughtful and personal. In order for a cover letter to stand out, you have to really put time into it, and it's it's not appealing at all because when you're looking for a job, you want to like batch produce cover letters. Uh, I think it, it needs to be a company you truly want to work for and you have to be able to hear it in what you've written. I also think cover letters don't get read as much as resumes get looked at. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's tough. Yeah. What's like the best cover letter situation you've ever seen? Do you even have one? <laughs> I, I mean, both were, both were long. Yeah. And, um, and were like stories where the person was just really honest about like, you know, this is my situation. I'm really happy at this job. Um, I have a family. I don't want to move to New York necessarily, but somebody passed along this job listening to me and, and it just spoke yeah. to me in, in a different way. And I just wanted to see if it's a good fit for you. I think there's a certain level of confidence in knowing that you're not getting hired by this person. It's like a mutual contract where you're vetting the organization or the agency as much as they're vetting you. And if you're in a place where you're just desperate for a job and you're not valuing what they're going to give you in exchange, you're just going to be bullied your entire career. You're going to start in a rough place. That's good. That's good advice. So both of you kind of in telling us, you know, how you got to Charity Water, you both made it sound like Oh, I got this opportunity to go work there. (laughs) So what does that mean? It doesn't sound like you were looking on the website for like open jobs. Um, How did that happen? (laughs) I don't know if you're, if we're in the same boat here, but Vic hired me. So she's our co-founder. She's Scott's wife. Okay. And she was the creative director at the time. She sent me an email on December 30th 
2012 and said, you don't know who I am, but I've been following along with some of your stuff online for a while. And I think you'd be a really good fit for our organization. And if you're up for it, I'd like to invite you to move to New York and work at Charity Water. It, it, was, it was such a personal, I mean, it was like an offer letter essentially mm-hmm. and totally out of the blue and just really good timing. So it was like truly an opportunity in that case. But going back to the, if you're thinking of that as like a cover letter, she, she just told me the story recently, but she showed it to Scott. Um, they were on a plane. She's like, do you think this is okay to send? And he's like, no, this is way too informal. What are you doing? This is like an offer letter. And she's like, no, nah, I think he'll appreciate it because she had been like following along for that long. And I did like the second I read it, I was like, I'm moving to New York. I yeah. was dreaming that whole weekend. Well, that sounds like a dream situation. I mean, I, was, if anybody pretty... wants to give me a job at a dream company, there are three that I would leave for. So. Yeah. But there was, I think for her to spend months like vetting someone yeah. secretly and I know yours, yours is a similar story yeah. you were vetted and then extended an invitation I think it's really really special yeah yeah what was yours yeah I mean it was very similar I was actually out to dinner with oh, Vic right. uh, Scott was speaking in Paris and um, she like popped the question <laughs> and, uh, but yeah it was kind of a little bit out of left field. Um, it was at the end of that Save It or Shave It campaign. Okay. So media is like, I've been being watched this entire time. But in some ways, Cubby was offered an invitation to come join the company because of his creative campaign and just the way that he engaged with his community. I was offered mine because of a silly video that I made with my friends uh, about like hosting barbecues with your neighbors. <laughs> Like those, both of us were doing things on the side because we enjoyed doing them that got us this job. The whole organization's pretty good about looking and listening. I think the wild ones, certainly the creative ones rise to the top. For you, either in like your job or your hobby or your life, what does being innovative look like? Like, what does that mean to you? So part of what was hard for me with Hobby Club is it, um, I wanted to do it better. Mm. And as a side project, it took... It just took a lot of time and I tried to find a way the second year to make it take less time and be more like I like I was entertaining and educating people, but it's still I still didn't feel like I could do it any better this year and that's why I'm not doing it. Um so I think innovation in any regard is about raising the bar. Nice. It has to be something you're willing to do that's bigger than what you did before. I like that. And I, I going along with that, I think Along with innovation comes a lot of fear Hmm. and anxiety, especially when it is something that's bigger you haven't done before and maybe different. Um, And so just like embracing that um, and not ignoring those fears, but letting them come kind of like along on the journey with you and allowing um, that space. It's just a fun place to create um, is when, you know, if it doesn't all work out or if it doesn't come out perfect, that's okay. Like I would rather um, try and continue to push the barrier of innovation to a place where I know if I didn't do it, I would be almost disappointed in myself. Mm. But living in a place of um, of not letting those fears dictate, you know, what I you know, what I make, what I create, what I share, you know, out of fear of like what people will think, but doing it because, um, because that's what I feel inside. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Such a good point. You should be excited to give somebody an update. And if you're saying, yeah, it's, you know, it's like the last time you saw it. (laughs) No, this is what I'm doing now. Then that's not being innovative. Yeah. 
Going back to the letter I read from Robert Safian in the beginning of the episode, in the opening paragraph, he writes, I've become a believer that business is the driving force for progress in modern culture. At the time I purchased this magazine in 2014, I couldn't have believed anything to be more true. And there's a part of me that still somewhat agrees. But the more I see of the world around me, and the more I come to understand the complex and diverse experiences of the people living in it, the less I see progress as something that rests solely on the shoulders of industry, and the more I see it as something that depends on you and me. Yes, I believe our corporations have a responsibility to be ethically just, fair, trustworthy, and transparent about their product, their economics, and their policies. Yes. What's encouraged and cultivated within our office floors and our companies certainly influences our individual perceptions, happiness, and fulfillment to some degree. They shape our dreams, our desires, and hopefully attune our minds to always be thinking towards the never-ending possibilities of what could be. And while two years ago, in a seemingly more stable world, I would have had to agree that business was the driving force for progress in our society. Today, however, I believe that progress doesn't rest on the shoulders of our business and economic institutions. Rather, all hope for the future rests on the determination, resilience, participation, awareness, and integrity of the individual, of the citizen. So in a nod to Robert, I'll sign off this episode with a familiar round of questioning. What's your mission? How are you living it? What moves you to action? And who or what are you going to hold yourself responsible for? Until now, these are questions you may not have asked yourself often enough. And that's okay, because tomorrow will come. But just know that it's up to you if tomorrow is going to be a new day. Hey, so it's Kat. All this talking with Tyler and Cubby really got me fired up. And it really inspired me. Hearing Cubby talk about how he donated so many of his birthdays, his beard, so basically his face, to make an impact in somebody else's life and give someone the gift of clean water really made me think, what am I doing to be generous? What am I doing to participate in making the world a better place? We have a responsibility as global citizens to give everyone a chance at life and opportunity and equality. And that definitely starts by making sure people have the resources they need to survive and live, like clean water. So I've decided to donate this podcast to a cause. This podcast is going to kick off a week-long fundraising campaign for Charity Water, and I need your help. I want to bring an entire village clean water. It's a big goal, and honestly, it kind of scares me to even think about. It's very possible that the only people listening right now are my parents and maybe one of my roommates. But I have to try, right? When I first had the idea to donate this episode to raising funds for Charity Water, I called Tyler up and I told him I was really nervous about doing it because I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to get anyone to participate. And he said, well, if you think about it, that's actually a psychological mind game. Anything you contribute is more than what we had before. So it doesn't matter if you make your goal or not because you're still affecting change. You're still driving awareness, driving funds to new water projects all over the world regardless of the number you have in mind. So with that being said, I'm going to step out. I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to put my podcast out there on display. And let's use this as an opportunity to activate. Let's become engaged. Let's become motivated. And let's see the type of movement that we can really create when a generation gets together and decides that they want to make a change. I'll put all the fundraising details on the show notes page. And whoever donates the most to this cause will have the opportunity to spend a Friday night drinking beer, 
if you're above the age of 21, and eating pizza with me and the whole Charity Water gang at their office in NYC. First things first, head over to our show notes page and subscribe to this podcast. Second, go follow us on Instagram. It's Millenovation, M-I-L-L-E-N-N-O-V-A-T-I-O-N. Share our post announcing this fundraising campaign. Use the hashtag Millenovation. And don't forget to tag me at Millenovation and Charity Water at C-H-A-R-I-T-Y-W-A-T-E-R on Instagram. Three, tag a friend and encourage them to join you in giving and fundraising to bring access to clean water to an entire village. Four, donate. Go to our fundraising page. It'll be in the show notes on our website. Click there and you can donate. It doesn't matter how much you have. All that matters is that we come together and try to make the world a better place. Thanks again for listening. And I'll see you next time on the Millennial Innovators Podcast. Tyler, T-Y-L-E-R. Last name is R-I-E-W-E-R. You can go to TylerReaver.com and it's like all of it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm Cuddy Graham on all things. D-U-B-B-Y-G-R-A-H-A-M.